After the entire debacle with the Midian women seducing the Jewish men, Pinchas rises up and Pinchas defends the Jewish nation and Hashem says he avenged the anger and shortly thereafter Hashem says to Moshe, I want you to now avenge the destruction because it was a tremendous destruction in the Jewish nation, 24,000 men died and take the Kama, take the revenge of the Yisrael from Midian. And basically Hashem was commanding Moshe to bring an army and to take vengeance, to take revenge against Midian. But then the Pasuk says, Achar te'asef elamecha, after that you will leave this earth. Basically Hashem was saying to Moshe, this is your last mission. You've done your job here, you have one final mission, that mission is to tell the Jewish people, lead them in this battle to take revenge against Midian. Once that's done, te'asef elamecha, then you are finished your job, you'll come join in Shemayim, you'll leave this earth. Now Rashi says something very, very interesting. The Pasuk says, you are Midian to take Nekama, says Rashi, Moshe Beno did it with tremendous joy, and he didn't delay. There were many, many ways that Moshe Beno could have delayed. Apparently there was no exact time that he was to leave this earth. It wasn't as day one or day two or the seventh of Cheshvan. He had to complete this mission, and once he was completed this mission, then he would leave this earth. But apparently there was no exact time. He could have delayed, he could have delayed a few months or whatever it may be. And that explains Rashi, right away he did it. He did it with tremendous joy in his heart. And if you think about this Rashi, I believe it's rather perplexing. Because many people aren't happy. Many people live a life of despair, a life of emptiness. Moshe Beno valued every minute of life because every minute of life for him was another opportunity to grow, to accomplish. He was the leader of the Jewish nation. He reached tremendous levels of nevuah, And every day was another chance for him to grow closer to Hashem, to gain which he, that which he can never gain again, namely to change the essence of him. So how is it possible that when Hashem says, do this and then you'll die, he does it immediately without delaying, and he does it with simcha, with tremendous joy. How could a person who loves life end their life happily I could hear him doing it begrudgingly, listen, Hashem, you say to, I'll do it. But to do it quickly and to do it with tremendous simcha, that sounds very difficult to understand. The question is, what does Rashi mean? How could Moshe Bain have done this with tremendous simcha? And, and to understand the answer to this question, I'd like to focus on something that we rarely think about. The Chobos of Ovas gives us an interesting mushal. He says, two brothers, these brothers inherit a field from their father, but the field is not enough to support two families. So there's one brother who's wise and industrious, and his other brother who's lazy and foolish. The wise and industrious fellow takes his half and says, listen, I can't support my family on the proceeds from this field alone, so he hires himself out to work for other people, and every free moment he goes back to his own field, and he, he begins cultivating it, he begins cleaning up the weeds, he begins preparing it, he works some more, works some more, but every free moment he has, he works on his field. And when he has enough money to live for a few months, he then just works on his field slowly. And slowly, slowly, his field starts to flourish, and the harvest is about to come. The other brother, the lazy, foolish one, says, Listen, this field, not enough to feed my family, forget about it. And he works for other people to support his family, but every free moment he has, he parties, he gets drunk, he whatever, he doesn't think about it. By that harvest of that year, the wise brother takes in the full harvest, sells it, and with that money has enough to live for the year, 
not only to feed his family, but then to har- to properly grow his crops again. And he begins accruing wealth. He buys more fields and more fields. And in a short while, the wise brother is very, very wealthy, whereas the foolish brother has nothing. After 10 years, the foolish brother has a field filled with thorns and thistles, has nothing to show for it. And the Chobos of Ovis explains that that is a mushal, a parable for us. We're in this world for a few short years, here to grow, here to accomplish, here to change the essence of me. But when I'm done my job here, I leave this earth, and for eternity I am what I shape myself into. I am here on a temporary journey. I'm here on a short sojourn. I'm going through this tunnel, and but for eternity, forever I'm there. And explains the Chobos of Ovis how much time do we spend on working on our future, and how much time do we squander in this earth. And he explains that what the wise brother recognizes is, I have to live. I have to feed my family. There are many responsibilities. I can't ignore them. But in reality, I'm going to put all of my energy, all of my efforts into my future, because that's where I'm going to be forever. So the wise man does what he has to, takes care of his responsibilities here, but the vast majority of his energies, his efforts are spent on growing, on accomplishing, because that's what he's going to be forever. Now, with that mushal, I'd like to share with you one interesting observation of our life. And that is, we are constantly, constantly busy and constantly working. And working for our bosses, or working for our business, or working for our children, or working for our spouse, or working for our communities. But we are busy all day long. And we have myriad responsibilities, paying the bills, cleaning, cooking, clothing, shopping, <coughs> showering, getting dressed. We spend an inordinate amount of time doing things. Now here's a very simple thought. There are sachakol in totality 168 hours in a week. No more, no less. You could be the most efficient time manager in the world. You're not going to increase it and you're not going to decrease it. 168 hours per week. Now, let's start doing the math. Imagine that you sleep 8 hours a day. Okay, there goes 56. Imagine that you work. You're going to work 9 to 5 even. Uh, and I'll give you that, even pretending that you only work 9 to 5, there goes another 50, 60 hours. You're going to travel to work, and there goes another hour, at least 10 hours a week. you got to shower, shave, you got to get dressed, you got to shop for clothing. Out of your 168 hours of the week, do you understand how many are taken up by obligations? Things that you have to do, but things that are not accruing for you great value in the world to come? And if you think about the amount of time that you have left, you'll quickly realize it's not a lot. It's not a lot, and this is the key question. What are you doing for you? What are you doing for you? Now, the Torah doesn't teach us to be selfish, but at the end of the day, Hashem put me here to grow, to accomplish. Yes, I'm supposed to be other-centered. Yes, I'm supposed to help other people. But at the end of the day, I have a mission, I have a plan. What am I doing for me? And if I spend 168 hours a week doing for everyone else but me, then there's something very, very wrong with the equation. And the fallout of that is very, very interesting. When I used to travel, I used to often go out of town, I'd speak in different communities, and when my kids were little, I'd often leave for a few days, sometimes even longer, so I'd try to bring the kids back something from wherever I went. And the kids knew that when I was coming back, they'd get some kind of gift, some kind of toy, whatever it may be, and they'd be invariably waiting for me. Abba, Abba, what'd you get us? What'd you get us? 
many, many people that I meet are exceedingly unhappy, extremely unhappy. As a matter of fact, when I went to when I was writing the book "Stop Surviving, Start Living," I, I was looking for a title. What's the right title for that book? So I asked many people the great philosophical question of our time. What is that great philosophical question? That great philosophical question is, how you doing? How you doing? And ask anybody. Ask somebody, how you doing? What's the answer? How you doing? Hanging in there. How you doing? Surviving. The best one I heard, how you doing? I'm alive. Now, folks, these were not people who were just given a, a sentence, they have six months to live. These weren't people who were just sent to prison for the rest of their life. These were people who were living in a lap of luxury, freedom, opportunity, to say, how are you doing? Surviving, hanging in there, I'm alive, demonstrates a very real lack of purpose, understanding, happiness, and joy in life. And many, many people that I speak to on a regular basis are fundamentally unhappy. And would you like to know a big part of the reason? It's really quite simple. When you lay your head down to rest at night, you'll put it on the pillow tonight, and you will leave. And you come to Shemayim, and you ask yourself the following question. What did you bring me? You went into this world filled with diamonds and opportunities. There were gold, there were diamonds in the streets. And what did you bring me back? What did you bring me? Your worn out tefillah, your half asleep during the dafayomi, your chesed that you did begrudgingly. What did you do for me? And you, at the core of your essence, are unhappy. Why? Because it's a shopping day. Every day in this world is like a grand shopping day. Imagine you're on this boat and you go to this island, and on this island, this prices are just phenomenal. You can buy diamonds for nothing. You can buy, ring, and you, but you bring nothing back. If you come into this world and you bring nothing back, there's an emptiness inside. Why? Because you, at the core of your essence, understand that you're not fulfilling your purpose. You're not accomplishing anything. And I'm afraid, in a very real sense, we are much like that lazy brother. We spend a tremendous amount of energy, effort, and time about our station in this world, how good I look, how much money I'm making, <clears throat> how my house looks. We spend an in Now, don't get me wrong. You have to take Parnassus seriously. You have to take the way you present seriously. But where's the focus? If the focus is all used up here, and I'm spending all of my time working for other people, and then I'm not working on my own field, then I'm missing something in a very real way. And I think the muscle <clears throat> the Chobos of Office is sharing with us is, very powerful and very penetrating. You have to ask yourself on a regular basis, what am I doing for me? But me means, what am I doing to change, to grow? How's my davening? How's my learning? How's my chesed? How's my midos? Am I changing? Am I, am I becoming that which I'm supposed to be? And if the answer is, well, I'm too busy, I'm occupied, I'm occupied with everything in the world, then I have a little suggestion. You take that device called a smartphone and you crash it. Because I guarantee, if you just learn to discover the off button on that little device, you'll find a lot more time for you, and I guarantee your life will be a lot better, not a lot worse. I have a fellow, who I, they were having some shown bias issues, and they both committed, you have to hear what they committed to, to shutting off the phone at 9.30. Do you understand the riches that they now have? The phone goes off, the internet connection stops. We used to have on the router in my house, we used to have a, a timer that would go off. It used to go off when the kids were little at 6.30. And then later it went to later. But if you shut the phone off and you actually have time to grow to a comfort, first of all, you have time for your family, you have time for your kids, but you'll have actually time to live, 
to be a human being, it's a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. And if you don't learn to do it, it's a tremendous, tremendous unglick. It's very sad, very unfortunate, because you waste your life. Now, I'd like to share with you, though, that growth isn't as simple as it sounds, because there are many different dimensions to growing, and each individual has a different area that they were put on the planet to perfect, and a different area in which they're supposed to grow. And it's not always easy to understand the differences amongst people. And let me begin with the following observation. Each generation has its test. Each generation has its tremendous test, and that will test the generation. So in America in the 1920s, the test was very simple. Would you keep Shabbos? Would you keep Shabbos? If you were born in Poland in 1920, you had a little bit of a different test. The test then was when you were in the Nazi concentration camp, and if you survived, would you put on tefillin again? Now, you may say, test, that's not a test. I keep Shabbos. I put on tefillin every day. <laughs> that means I'd be a tzaddik by, by those proportions. Except that's not quite what the test of the generation was. You see, in the 1920s, in the United States of America, when you told your boss you're not coming in on Saturday, he said, don't come in on Saturday, don't bother coming in on Monday. And getting a job wasn't that simple. And getting a job meant a difference between whether you're able to pay the rent or not, whether your kids had food to eat or not. And if you lost this job, you didn't know if you would get another job. And if you didn't pay the rent, it wasn't like there were all these social welfare programs. If you didn't pay the rent, all of your belongings were taken, put on the street, and that's where you and your family slept. But you have to understand, that was an Assyrian and a time when things were very different. I know a man whose grandfather lost his job 80 weeks in a row. 80 weeks in a row. He went into the boss on Friday said, I can't come in on Saturday. And boss said, don't come in on Saturday, you're not coming in on Monday. And the next week he got another job. And next week in 80 weeks in a row, he lost his job. Now that is a very, very real Nisayan, because it's a Nisayan where you're not given covered for what you're doing. When people say, come on, that was the old country, that was the old way of doing things. And why are you doing the shave the payers, get rid of the beard, stop it. This is, we're here, this is America, be like a Yankee. When there's tremendous social pressure, when your kids laughed at you, when your wife laughed at you, when all of your friends made fun of you, keeping Shabbos was a major, major Nisayan. And as a Satma Rebbe once said, he's getting on in age, and they said, Rebbe, Rebbe, when you go, who's going to give us brachas? He said, all you have to do is find a man with a tattoo on his arm and tefillah marks, ask him for a bracha. Because if you survived the Nazi concentration camps and you're still putting on tefillin, that is a tremendous accomplishment. But the great difficulty is judging another generation by your standards. Because it's true, for us to keep Shabbos is not a big deal. For me to put on tefillin isn't a big deal. But those weren't the times. And to be able to judge a generation by its times isn't so simple. And I'll share with you an interesting observation. Here's the question. Are we smarter today than people were 100 years ago? Is there any reason to assume that our brains have developed, that we've become more intelligent, that we <coughs> obviously no real reason to assume that. Yet oddly enough, <coughs> IQ scores have gone up in the past century to an extent that's hard to believe. James Flynn discovered something, it's called the Flynn effect, that over the past 100 years, 
average IQ scores have increased by 15 points. Now, 15 points in IQ scores is a deviation and a half. What that means in plain and simple language is if you took a person from 100 years ago, an average person, and put him into our world and gave him an IQ test, he would score about a 70, which is borderline mentally retarded. And if you took an average person from our generation and put him back then, 100 years ago, he would score a 130, which is close to gifted. Now, why is it that there's such a huge, vast difference in IQ scores? And this was James Flynn set out with this question to discover the answer. And basically what he discovered was people are no smarter today than they were 100 years ago, but we're trained in a different type of thought, particularly abstract thinking. And he gives an example. If you take the Wechsler Intelligence Test, so and one of the questions that they'll ask for children is to, to determine their ability to categorize, to understand groupings. And this is one of the questions. Dogs and rabbits, how are they alike? You have a dog, you have a rabbit, how are they alike? So if the child answers both are animals, that's half credit. Kind of true, they're both animals, and that's, that's true. If the child answers they're both mammals, that's full credit. Now, do you understand why a child today will be much more easily able to answer that question than a child 100 years ago? Because categories and mammals and animals and species are right there in front of us. We have a tremendous amount of information, have a tremendous amount of exactly that type of abstract thinking. Our jobs demanded of us, our schooling demanded of us. We go to school for much longer, typically, than people did 100 years ago. And because of that, there's a training in a particular type of thought. But again, it doesn't mean today anyone's more intelligent. It definitely means that there's a different type of thought process that allows you to think in a different way. And while that is a tremendous bracha, it also comes with a cost. You see, when you live in the times, you don't realize what the times are. And you don't realize what the challenges of our times are. And you don't realize how much we're affected and influenced by what's going on. We human beings in general are terrible judges. We think we know how to judge this one and that one. I can tell you where he's holding. I can tell you where <clears throat> Rare it is that we ever get it even near correctly. Not only do we rarely get it near correctly, I'll share with you a very interesting observation. There's a fellow who I know who used to call me regularly. He couldn't down with a minion. Couldn't down with a minion. Now, obviously, he's not a very harsh person, right? If you don't down with a minion, came out ever, you're clearly, you know, not holding. There's only one point, though, that was very interesting. He had social anxiety. When he'd be in a room with other people, when I put myself too close to this guy, too close to that guy, he couldn't concentrate. He was so nervous that he couldn't concentrate. Now, if you or I were to judge that person, we'd judge them, but we'd be miles and miles off. How about a fellow as OCD? And there was a fellow I knew, a very from guy, a very good guy, who said to me he has a tremendous problem dominating. What's the problem? Every time as he's about to start Shemana Esrei, there's a thought that comes into his head. Maybe Hashem is not here. Maybe Hashem is not here. Maybe Hashem doesn't exist. Now, but here was the queer part. The queer part was, he was very religious, and he was a real mamin. Why did he have these thoughts? Because he has OCD, and the way obsessive thinking works is certain thoughts come into your brain, and you push them away, but they come back. You push them away, they come back. You push them away, and you have to answer it. So you have to answer it. Hashem does exist, and he learns a Kuzari, he learns a Rambam, and he learns... 
but you can never fight those fights because the minute you address it, the questions come back, and, and dealing with that and being happy in that matzav is a very difficult situation. How about a fellow who's got, um, excuse me saying it, tendencies to like men? He doesn't want to. He's married, but he has a, he's pulled that way. For him, going to a base medrash is torture. For him, going to a minion is torture. So here's the point. We're very quick to judge other people, but we don't have a clue. We can't judge ourselves because we don't have an idea at all of the influences of our generation. We can't judge other people because we're going to judge them by the standard of me. And guess what? I'm not him and he's not me. Each individual is given a vastly different tafkid, different talents, different abilities, different shortcomings, and each of us were given a different mission. As my Rebbe Roshiva Zatzal often would say, there's an old Jewish, old Jewish wives' tale. It's not a wives' tale, but it's a mushal. And say that if each person has a peckle, each person has a pack on their back. And if we were to take each person's peckle, each person's heavy sack, and put it in the middle, each person would run to their sack. Why? Because when I'm wearing the sack, it feels so heavy. What do I need this OCD? What do I need this social anxiety? What do I need these attractions? I don't need this. Hashem, why are you doing this to me? It's terrible. Until I recognize the fact that that has been handcrafted to fit me like a hand in glove. Handcrafted to allow me to be challenged and allow me to grow, but demanding of me that I actually work on the issue that I deal with it. But handcrafted to my strengths. You see, I couldn't handle your load, but you couldn't handle my load. And I don't know what's going on by you, and I barely know what's going on by me, but one thing I know, Hashem designed a perfect package for each person to be the load that they need to lift. And it's much like progressive weight training. The stronger you get, the heavier the load gets, the more work you're doing. And many, many times people have this question, Hashem, why me? I'd be so much more productive. I'd be so much more effective if you would have taken this away, if you would have given me this, if this, if that. And you have to recognize that Hashem knows very well what He's doing. And if you like a muscle to fundamentally understand life, I'll share with you a very interesting thought. My daughter was minoring in music, and she was the entire class was invited to the Hungarian National Symphony Orchestra playing in in New York City, and she had tickets, so my wife and I joined her, and we got to watch the Hungarian National Symphony Orchestra. Very nice production. I'm not very much into symphonic music, but it was interesting. It was fun. The second, uh, I think it was the second act, when uh, when I saw someone walk on a stage, stand there, and then, on cue, went boom. 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 And then at the end of that piece, walked off stage. That man's job was to bang the drum three times because in that symphony there was a supposed to be a loud sound. The drum was the cannons going off. So he was to beat the drums three times. I found it a little humorous because he traveled from Hungary to New York to bang three times. But okay, fine. Interesting, wonderful. If you'd like a muscle and to understand life, imagine you have a kid. A kid who's talented on the flute. Now each instrument makes a very different sound. The oboe is deep, percussions are loud, the flute is light and airy, the violins are so moving. But each instrument creates a different sound. Imagine you have a kid who's a virtuoso, 
He's phenomenally talented. On the flute, he's incredible. He's six years old and people are, are flocking to hear him. At seven, he's known as a maestro. At eight, he's doing phenomenally. He's world famous. And then he hears the kettle drum. Boom, boom, boom. And he says, oh my goodness, this flute. And this flute is so tinny. It's so small. I want a big sound. I want a drum. I want to play the drum. He doesn't have a drum. So he takes his flute and he bangs the flute. And the kid wrecks his talent because he's gifted as a flutist. As a percussionist, I don't know. But one thing for sure, you were given a mission, you were given a purpose, and when you try to take on someone else's role, well, guess what? You're not going to do it very well, and you're not going to be very happy at all. I know many, many people, many, many people who are unhappy. Unhappy because they need things. I need money. But not that he can't pay his bills. I need money because I need to be wealthy. I need to be financially secure. I need honor. I need... Many, many people need things, but their needs are self-projected, and they live their lives trying to be things that they can't be. I need to be this. I need to be that. I cannot tell you the amount of people I've seen make themselves miserable. If you'd like to understand Moshe Rabbeinu, I believe it's really quite simple. You see... Hashem told him, this is your next mission. And Moshe Rabbeinu had a tremendous amount of trust in Hashem. Moshe Rabbeinu loved life. But because he understood that Hashem knows better than he, he loved life and yet he said, this is my mission, this is my job, Hashem you know better than I. And he trusted Hashem. And with that trust he said, if this is what you want me to do, it is for the best, it is good. And with joy in his heart he did it because he was an Ever Hashem who trusted Hashem. And I believe that this concept is fundamental for our happiness in life and our understanding life. The Chavaz of Avos explains that there are two principles that you have to have firmly entrenched if you want to have trust in Hashem. The first principle is pretty straightforward. The second one gives us a lot of trouble. The first one is knowing that Hashem loves me more than I love me. As much as I want what's best for me, as much as I want my betterment, as much as I love me, Hashem loves me even more. That concept is the first concept that you need to have for Bitochem. But it's the second one that's a little bit more difficult. The second one is that Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. As much as I think I need this, as much as I think I have to have this, Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. And I believe that this is exactly why people get into so much trouble in life. I need to be. You see, Moshe Rabbeinu trusted Hashem and knew that this was his level of perfection he could reach. Hashem wanted him to do this because this is for his best. And then he's done, done his job with trust in his Creator. He went forward. But most people aren't like that at all. I need to be. I need to be wealthy. I need to be famous. I need to be a Tamachacham. I need to daven better. I need to have better Midos. Now, if it's a growth aspiration, it's fine. But you have to know whether it's a growth aspiration or it's a desire to be something that you're not supposed to be. And I don't know if you're supposed to do this, but I'm going to give myself a little musr, a little self-revelation over here. For 10 years, for 10 years, I made the good Lord's job difficult. I gave Hashem a tough time. I was a high school rebbe, and I had a very good Kesha with the guys, and I used to really... I really, I had a, I used to love the guys, I used to love what I was doing, but I always had this feeling that the guys were just a little too young, a little too immature. Give me the same guys two years, three years later, I could really mold them like a man. Anyway, I knew 
I was supposed to be a Rosh Hashiva. I was supposed to open a yeshiva, and that's what I knew I was supposed to do. My Rebbe, Rosh Hashiva Tzal, you know, was all for it. There were a number of situations that came up. This didn't work, this didn't work, this didn't work. For 10 years, for 10 years, I knew what I was supposed to be, and for 10 years, it didn't go anywhere. Well, guess what I discovered? Uh Uh-uh, it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. Now, whether the schmooze has accomplished anything or not, one thing I know, it suits me. But it's not a Rosh Hashiva. It's not like learning all day. It's not like Ian and Atosis. You're right. But you see, if I need to get my Olam Haba, and I know better than Hashem, then I'm in big trouble. Because if I know better than God, God messed up. He gave me this limitation and this flaw and this fault, and I can't become the great person I could be. I was brought up in the wrong kind of home. I was given the wrong kind of background. Hashem, why did you do this to me? Had you given me a different background, a different head, a different parents, I would have been much better off, and I would have been able to really become somebody great. Hashem, why did you do this to me? And the simple understanding that Hashem handcrafted, custom-designed that exact situation for you, because that's the ideal setting for you to reach your potential. But you're not supposed to be Him. You might play the violin, He may play the oboe. The oboe may be much louder. Percussions certainly make a lot of noise. But the flute is a very, very important instrument. And each instrument in the symphony has its own place, has its own beauty. But when you try to be something that you're not supposed to be, well, guess what? You sure don't do a good job of it, and you make yourself miserable. And my friends, I believe that this concept is fundamental to understanding life and fundamental to happiness. Understanding that Hashem knows very well what He's doing. And Hashem gave me all of the strengths, all of the talents, put me into the exact right generation. This generation is vastly different than two generations ago and three generations ago. The times we're living in are unique. Unique in incredible ways. I've never seen the past five years, Hashem Yerachem, things have changed so fast. And people have lost their sanity. I believe the great test of our current generation is can you remain sober? Can you remain sane? When the insanity of the world out there is teeming, is just beyond description, can you remain a sober, sane human being? That alone might be the very test of the generation. But one thing I have to tell you, shutting yourselves off from it makes it a lot better and makes you a lot happier. But understanding this concept that each generation has its own test and each generation has its own difficulties, and I was put into this generation because it fits me perfectly. And my temperament, my nature, and my IQ, my abilities were all custom-made for me. But for me to be the great person I can be. But I'm not supposed to be you. It could be I'm a violin, it could be you're an oboe, it could be... But I'm supposed to be me, and I'm supposed to grow and accomplish in my way. I think this Rashi shares with us a tremendous concept. And that concept is that Moshe Rabbeinu had tremendous bitachon and Hashem. And despite the fact that he knew that this was the end of his life, and despite the fact that he loved life, and despite the fact that the human being has such a natural desire to live, he willingly went forward with joy in his heart because he knew that Hashem knows better than he what's for his best. And because of that, there was tremendous energy, zeal, and joy, and because he knew that this was what Hashem wanted, and this was what's best for him, because there was that underlying trust. And understanding that we're here for a few short years, and understanding exactly as the Chovah says, that Moshal, there's the wise brother and the foolish brother. The wise brother recognizes that he has to take care of his family. 
So he has to work for other people. But any spare moment that he has, with energy, with zeal, he puts into his field, because that's going to be his future. The foolish brother blows it. He says, listen, this field can't support me anyway. So he works for other people, and all his extra time he wastes. And after 10 years, the wise brother is wealthy, independent. The foolish brother is back where he started. That is a muscle to us. And we have many responsibilities in life. We have to work, we have to take care of our family, we have many, many things we have to do, and we can't stop doing them. But at the same time, any spare moment, any spare energy has to be dedicated to one thing. What's my mission in this world? What's my plan? What's my purpose? What is my Olam Haba going to look like? Am I going to live in a palatial manner? Am I going to live in a shack? Am I going to be tremendously developed, or am I going to be a diminutive little puny thing? But I'm working now for that. But understanding that the other things I do, I have to do, but that's not working for me, and asking myself, how much time am I spending working for me? And when you put your head down on that pillow, and you open your eyes in the morning, and you know that you went out of this world, you left the physical confines, and the question that you asked yourself then was, what did you bring me? What did you accomplish in those hours that you were awake? You could have grown, you could have changed, you could have helped other people, you could have changed yourself. What did you do? And if there's not an inner joy in your heart, it's largely often because you're not growing and accomplishing. But even once you're growing, even once you're accomplishing, you also have to make peace with the fact that Hashem knows better than I and what's for my best. Hashem put me into this generation, gave me these strengths and talents, because this is the perfect opportunity for me. But to have bitach and a person has to have two, two strong, strong understandings. Number one, Hashem loves me more than me. And number two, Hashem knows better than I what's for my best. When you understand that, you understand that Hashem custom made the ideal setting for me. But you have to trust Hashem and you have to stop comparing yourself to others. Stop wishing to be something you can't be, you're not supposed to be. Because at the end of the day, the only question they ask you is, how much did you, did you become? And I want to close with one last thought because this concept requires chizik. The Pasuk says, Hu Moshe va'aron. Moshe and Aaron are in Mitzrayim. The Pasuk ends with Hu Moshe and Aaron. He is Moshe and Aaron. And Rashi points out that Moshe and Aaron, sometimes it's Moshe first, sometimes it's Aaron first. And they're used interchangeably. Many times you'll see it's Moshe va'aron. Many times you'll see it's Aaron and Moshe explains Rashi, why is the Torah doing this? <clears throat> what is the Torah telling us? <laughs> to teach us that they were exactly equal. Don't think Aaron Akoni was greater, and don't think Moshe Rabbeinu was greater. They were on exactly the same level. Moshe of Aaron, Aaron and Moshe, they were on exactly the same level. The Torah is teaching us that by interchanging the order of the names. Okay, very interesting Rashi. And if you think about that Rashi, it should be rather perplexing. Why? Because as great as Aaron Akoin was, he was not Moshe Rabbeinu. And Moshe Rabbeinu was the greatest human being who ever lived. And Moshe Rabbeinu went up to Ar Sinai and accepted the Torah. And for 120 days, 40 days, three times in a row, Moshe lived without food, without drink, learned the entire Torah. He was the Tsar. He was the one who brought the Jews out of Mitzrayim. He was the one who taught the Jews Torah. As great as Aaron Akoin was, he was nowhere near Moshe Rabbeinu. How could Rashi be saying, school them, they were equal? And I'd like to share with you the answer to that question. And the answer to that question is that there are two standards of measure. One standard is the absolute standard, and the other is subjective. 
the absolute standard is who's greater in learning, who's greater in Musr, who's greater as a tzaddik. That's the absolutely objective standard. But there's a subjective standard. What was your talents? What were your abilities? How much of you did you become? It's true, Moshe Rabbeinu was unique. He was in a shama that was supposed to be greater than any other human being. And Moshe Rabbeinu reached 99.9% of his potential. Aaron was not supposed to be that same greatness. But Aaron also reached 99.9% of his potential. So in this world, there's no question Moshe Rabbeinu towered over Aaron and we would have to treat Moshe Rabbeinu with more honor because in the absolute standard, in the objective standard, Moshe was greater. But in terms of reaching their potential, they were both equal. And when you leave this world here, they don't ask you how much money you had, they don't ask you how many block gemara you learned, they don't ask you how much stuck you gave, they ask you one question, how much did you, did you become? And if you became 99.9%, then you are the same level tzaddik, as a person who might have been phenomenally greater than you, but he only reached 99%. As a matter of fact, you might have the opposite. In this world, you might be way, way below people. You might be a, a Talmud. A Talmud of a Talmud of somebody who's great, but if that person only reached 80% of their potential, and you reach 95 well, guess what? In the world to come, you're going to tower over them, and you're going to be greater, because again, the single question they ask is, how much of you did you become? And I think this Rashi shares with us a very eye-opening concept. Number one, that Moshe Rabbeinu trusted Hashem with his joy in his heart. And number two, that the measure of the person is how much of you did you become and making peace with the fact that Hashem wants me to be not what you are, not what some objective, absolute standard is, but Hashem wants me to be me, whether it's an oboe, whether it's a violin, whether it's a flute, but that's my job, and my job is to play that instrument play that role as well as I can. And I'd like to stop now and take questions, thoughts, observations. I see some people typed in questions. We have people also who uh, emailed in. But let's take some raise of hands. Uh, if anyone wants to ask a question on this topic or any other topic, please feel free to raise your hand. Um, and hopefully we'll get some questions in. Okay, Batya, Moses, you have the floor. Hi, Rabbi. Thank you so Hi. much for a very interesting discussion. Uh, uh, I was learning with one of my chabruses, and the topic of um, covering our hair came up. And we, it, it's just like what you were saying about we don't know what the previous generations went through. Today, there's a lot of mishigas about how long the skirt should be and the type of collar, and everybody's measuring everything. Mm -hmm. But if you look at photos of uh, some of the great rabbis and their rebbitsons from even 50 years ago, 100 years ago, you'll see that they didn't cover cover their hair, or if they did, it was with a modest little doily. Nobody wore a gorgeous shaitel that you can't tell from real hair. Um, they wore dresses that were part of popular fashion with um, collars that were would be totally unacceptable today. Um, Okay, so I, I want to comment on, on something that you're saying, because you're hitting on some very important points. You see, there is the letter of the law, 
and the spirit of the law. And I think oftentimes the two get confused. The letter of the law is a woman's obligated to be modest. That means covering her hair and covering her elbows and her knees, etc. Unfortunately, in our time, what has happened is many women are very punctilious, very, very careful when it comes to the letter of the law, and they'll wear sleeves that are long and dresses that are long, but tight and very provocative and very unbecoming and really not sneeze at all. But they're within the letter of the law. Now, if you violate the spirit of the spirit of the law is you're not supposed to be a source of attraction to other men. <clears throat> Woman's beauty is for her husband. It has a particular place, a particular time. But you don't want to be an attraction to other men. You don't want to be the center of attention, people looking at you in that way. And therefore, a woman should be modest. But modest has a letter of the law and a spirit of the law. <clears throat> the spirit of the law is it shouldn't be attracting to other people. It should be attractive, but not attracting. And that's the spirit of the law. The letter of the law is the length, etc. Now, the problem is, in both generations, if you show me pictures of women in previous generations where they weren't keeping the letter of the law, well, guess what? That's not great. If you show me women in this generation who are keeping the letter of the law but not keeping the spirit of the law, well, that's not right either. So the answer is, this is a great test. Listen, for me, I, it doesn't really, you know, I'll be honest with you, there are many times when I have four daughters, and I'd come home Friday night, and one of my daughters would say, oh, Abba, nice tie. Like, yeah, this one. Oh, okay, good. I, I, for me, most guys aren't that into their clothing. For me, I, I, like I couldn't care. But for women, it's a big deal. It defines them. It's, it's their identity. It's their peer group. So it's a major, major test. And I don't claim to know what that test is, and I don't claim that I'd be able to pass that test. And, but the simple reality is you're 100% correct. There's a major test in our generation, and that is that women are taught to keep the letter of the law, and to wear the right shirt lengths and the right skirt lengths, but the spirit of the law, the sense of not being provocative, not being, not being sexualized in a, in a very improper manner, somehow got lost in the translation. So what am I going to tell you? Both, both need improvement, and we have to work on both, because ultimately that's, that's the goal. So I'm not sure I answered your question, but I hope, hope I shared some thoughts. Well, it really wasn't a question as much as an observation and trying to connect it to um, my my understanding of many of the things that you that you were presenting and it is a difficult issue because depending on the community you live in um, something that's acceptable here might not be acceptable there I lived in a very yeshivish community um, and in that community a woman didn't show bare toes, but the community I grew up in, I wore sandals with toes showing. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, th- there are there are degrees, but the thing is that w- we have the um, the tircha being constantly measured and judged. Right. You, if right. You belong to a group you don't go there it's like the business with i can't tell the difference between men's hats but i know some some, some cost guys, 350 dollars and some cost 100 dollars, right but that no you, your brim is yeah your brim is uh two and a quarter inches versus right. two and a half inches and this makes you that and there's an up hat and right. a down hat let me share one i want to share with you one observation i mean to cut you <laughs> off but one observation i want to share with you i had a woman actually a couple came to me they were, uh, cons- they were about to get engaged. And here was the sticking point. 
she would wear dresses that were cut in the back all the way down. Like to a wedding or to a bar mitzvah, she wore these very, very revealing dresses. And he said, I don't want my wife dressing that way. And she said, but that's, I, I want to dress away. Um, I asked her, tell me, how often is it that you're, you, know, you wear these dresses? You know, you go to bar mitzvah, wedding. She said, maybe three, four times a year. So I, I said, so, I mean, are you going to give up your, your potential husband, the person you'll be spending for, for this? Is, is that worth it? And here's where I learned what an assay and what a test is. She wasn't sure. She wasn't sure. She said to me, how could I show up wearing a, I, they'll think I don't want a dress. They'll, 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 they'll laugh at me. <laughs> then I said, I get it. I am not in that <clears throat> test. That's not my assignment, but that is a major assignment. So what can I tell you? Right. Each person has their own test, each generation, each group. Women have different tests than men. Men have different than women. And you have to know your test, know your strength, and ultimately, you know, win, win that test. Okay, thank you very much for joining. And I wish you much, thank much. You. Okay, good. Okay, <clears throat> let's see. Who else has a hand up? Anybody else have a hand up? Um, okay, Binyam and Pesach is going to question. Let me just see if I could. Um, actually, there's a question here I want to read. Um, had someone typed in. Does the rabbi have an insight on how I can change from being a sarcastic person, meaning a sarcastic sense of humor, and that generally generates a smile, laugh from people around? Believe me, feeling I can be bigger than that. Thank you so much. Okay, so eschatasi ani maskir hayom. I too have certainly had, but still have a bit of a sarcastic sense of humor, um, and it's a problem because it's not always so. My father used to say sarcasm is the lowest form of humor, but it also has a budding, a biting sort of um, cynical edge to it. And I think that's what it stems from. It stems from cynicism. And it stems from a sort of... Now, don't get me wrong. It's funny. It's cute. But I think the answer is, yeah, if you recognize where it stems from, where it comes from, you may, it may make it easier to channel your humor in a different way. Now, don't get me wrong. A sense of humor is imperative. A sense of humor is one of the most valuable things. And my Rebbe, the Shiva used to teach us all the time, you have to have a sense of humor. But he also taught us a tremendous principle. And that is, you can't hurt other people with your humor. So, if you have a good sense of humor, and you want to entertain people, and you want to use it, I have a very simple suggestion. Point that humor at you. No one gets insulted by your sarcastic, biting humor if it's pointed at you. No one gets insulted by your cute lines if it's self-deprecating. And that is, I think, one of the simplest solutions to either a sarcastic sense of humor or in general, abiding sense of humor, because it is very important to keep a sense of humor. It is very important to be light and, and keep a certain, you know, joyfulness about you. But if you're finding that it's hurting other people, just direct it towards yourself. No one gets hurt. I hope you won't get hurt. I hope you believe that you meant it in good humor. You see, when you say it to somebody else, they're not always sure that it was in good humor. When you say it to yourself, I hope you know it um, and remember it. So, um, okay. Okay, I, want to, I have to take this next question also because I'm also guilty of this, this sin. The next person's question is, and I'm guilty of the same sin. I am over 60. Can I still reach my potential? Welcome to the club. Uh, <laughs> what can I tell you? Us old folks. Yeah, there was a time when I and you as well were younger folk. And so the answer is a person can grow, can accomplish in a minute. A per- there were Tanoim who grew. Rebbe Lozabar Dudan, the 
Shmuz number, uh, it's four or five, Ahem Kippur Shmuz, that a person was, Kona is Olam Haba in one moment. A person can grow, can change, can accomplish. The Chassam Sofer, I quoted last week, says that people make a mistake. When a person dies young, they say, what sin did he do? What did he do wrong? Some Sofer says it doesn't take that long to reach perfection. If a person does everything right, and a person does everything proper, it won't take that long. It doesn't have to take 60 years or 70 years. And a person spends a few years doing everything that his neshama tells him is right, and he does it. And in a few short years, he perfects himself, and he can be done his job here on the planet. What the Chassam Sofer is telling us is that the reason why it takes 60 years, 70 years, 80 years, is because typically we take one step forward, two steps back, two steps forward, two steps back, and we end up spinning our wheels for so long that it takes 70, 80 years. But here's the point. If at 60 you wake up and say, let's go, you could reach who knows what potential, who knows what levels you could reach. All you got to do is do what you know is right, do what's proper works, put your nose to the grindstone and go forward. It doesn't have to take 80 years to reach your potential. It doesn't have to take any specific amount of time. You wake up at 50, you wake up at 60, whatever the age is. So there's hope for us folks. Um, welcome to the club, and I wish you much atzlacha with that. All right, um, let me see. Um, uh, Binyamin Pesach, let's take your question. Go ahead. Hi. Hi. Um, so a couple of things, that, some of this stuff. Uh, one is that uh, about the potential, I just find it interesting that I think when when, when I was younger, so, you know, particularly being in Chavetz time, you know, going to go out, going to conquer the world, you're going to change the world and have that attitude. And it seems as I get older, become more inner focused on changing myself. It really should be the other way around. But sometimes as you get older, you realize you're so busy trying to make changes, big changes in the world you don't necessarily fine-tune yourself, and sometimes I think maybe as you get older, you realize that uh, you gain at least as much by trying to fine-tune yourself. Yeah, Just, yeah, yeah, I hear you, I, I hear you. Um, but you have to keep that eye on, on helping others also. And it was really, you have to keep it, you know, it's a dual focus. Right, 100%. 100%. I wasn't meant to exclusive. I right. just said that, that maybe your youthful enthusiasm, you can overlook uh, some of yourself, you can feel you get your performance out of, you know, right. big changes you're doing towards others. Right, know? and by the way, it's also, it's much, much easier, much, much easier to change other people. Because they should do it, they should do it, they should do it. Me? Right, 100%, <laughs> right. So you, I'm saying with yeah. maturity comes the realizing that, that it's that's at least as big a challenge, if not more, to make the changes in yourself. Than, uh, change, than to, right, the change is difficult, and I'm, right. I'm right. Um, in, in the part he said about about the, the everyone picking their own pickle, um, I'm pretty sure, he doesn't say it exactly, but I'm pretty sure Derek Hashem pretty much implies that uh, that mahalach about the, each peckle being like the, <coughs> being picked themselves. I think it's okay. pretty much along the lines of Berich Hashem. Okay, so only because you said this, and I'll, I'll sound like uh, this is very fortuitous, because this morning I was reading the Berich Hashem where he discusses this exact issue. Um, so it's fortuitous, as they say. So with the I think we set this up. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate. It. Right. So there are two things. One is the Derek Hashem explains that each person has a custom designed for them uh, a matzah based on a number of situations, whether what they did before, what they're doing now, and it, down to the incredible detail of it. What what you, it could be what you're referring to more is when Rabbeinu Machai says that before each person comes into this world, they're shown their tough kid, they're shown their strength, their talents, what they'll be, and each one they each agree and say, yes, I want that. 
So Rabbeinu Chai really is the one who, who says that. It's and, a quote from Medrash. Says that? No, no, no. Rabbeinu Chai and Chumash on Kitsese on the Pasuk and Kinofal, Nofal Tipol. If you send me an email, send you ask, Nofal, uh, on the Pasuk, Kiyipol Hanofel, that, that Pasuk in Kitsese, Rabbeinu Chai there says, quotes this Medrash, that each person sees what they're going to go, go through and they say, yes, perfect, that's what I want. It's when you come into the world, you get confused and you forget about it. But all right. And also, it's interesting that this is another one of the weekly shmuzim, which seems a lot of you focused on the concepts at the beginning of Misal Sasharim. Yep. 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 Because the first parak of Misal Sasharim is the essence of life. Rashidus, that's all you say it all the time. This is it. Yeah, this is. If, do you understand? If we got the first parak right, if I understood I'm here for a future years to grow and accomplish who I am for eternity is based on what I do, I, come on, I, I'd be a. I grow, I'd be a, a tremendous, I'd be, I'd probably be a tzaddik by now. The problem is, I get it and I forget it, I get it, I get busy, I get it, and I, it's, it's a, it requires constant revisiting, constant thinking about it, because that is the great principle of life. Yisoda chasidus, v'shor shavoda tamima, that is the source. And by the way, folks, there is a series on the shmooz.com called Life 101. I spent, it's 16 shurim on the first parakim of Sharm. Um, I welcome you to go to the site, uh, the shmuz.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. If you go to series, on the top you'll see series, and you'll see one of them is called Life 101. And that really, again, it's 16 shmuz that I gave on this, uh, on this, uh, on the first pair of Mr. Sharm. It's also on the podcast, I believe, I have to check that, but it's definitely on the shmuz app. And it's also the subject of Stop Surviving, Start Living. I mentioned this last week. It's on, it's on the website. It's on the website, okay. I downloaded it from the website, yeah. Oh, okay, great, excellent. But this this is not on a website. This you have the to go Life to, 101. Life 101. Yeah, but Stop Surviving, you have to go to Amazon for. But you go to Amazon, you get pick this up. Okay, good. Okay, thanks for visiting. Okay, Yishkach. Okay. Okay, if anyone else has questions, we do have another minute or two, let me see. Um, uh, but that can destroy his self-esteem. What can destroy his self-esteem? Um, and that last question, if you get to add a little bit more detail, it'll make it easier for me to know. Okay. Okay, here's a question I'd like to read. How do I know that my what my mission is? How do I keep it up if I don't feel I'm getting feedback or being successful? How do I get out of the habits that I am nichshal in? Okay, that sounds like three different questions. Um, okay, how do I know what my mission is so oftentimes you won't know? Certainly not when you're 20, not when you're 25, and you may not wake up until you're 45. Um, you know, again, uh, a lot of times we have different versions of I know what I'm supposed to be. Again, I being a guilty party, I knew what I was supposed to be. Guess what? I wasn't supposed to be that. So, you know, a lot of times we block um, our our understanding of what we're supposed to be doing. But let me share with you one very simple observation. When Hashem created you, Hashem put you here, gave you strength, gave you talents, and gave you an area to work on. Now, Hashem wouldn't put you into the world and, and sort of like, well, you got a mission, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> I guess go figure it out on your own. And if you don't figure it out, tough luck, Charlie. <clears throat> Hashem guides you. Hashem directs you. If you open your ears, you ask Hashem, <clears throat> I, I don't see what should I be working on, what should I be doing, where should I be focused. Now, part of the problem is <clears throat> that it's not necessarily available at, you know, let's say you ask that question when you're 20. But your real mission, whatever that may be, doesn't begin until you're 40 or 45. Or, or oftentimes, the other problem is we put up a lot of static. So, meaning, I don't want that. Uh, that's not glorious enough. That's not important enough. That's not whatever. So, I think each person has the ability to know what they're supposed to be working on. 
and so you just have to, you know, you have to daven, you have to ask, and you have to listen carefully to that voice inside when it tells you, uh, you know, what it, what it is that you should be doing. Now, the last part of your question, how do I get out of ha- habits that I'm neutral in? i got to be honest with you, learn Musr. Learn Musr. That's, that's the only way. you gotta learn, you got to learn Musr every day, like a bell ringing in my ear. And my Rebbe, the Shiva Zetzal's words, you have to learn Musr every day. Because Musr is what puts you on track. Musr is what keeps you on track. Now, if you can learn it from a classic Musr Sefer, that's best. If not, then again, you go to Life 101, you download it. I mentioned last week there's a four-part series. I have 30 Sharm on the first four parakim of Sharm. <coughs> Send me an email, I'll gladly share that with you. But there's plenty on the Shmuel site, there's plenty of other, you can go on turn anytime, there are many, many speakers. You have to learn Musr, again, the best if you can do from a Musr Sefer, but if not, at least uh, make sure that you're, <coughs> you do it regularly. Okay, I just want to mention, if you're not yet on the Shmuel's WhatsApp group, you can go on the Shmuel's.com and you can subscribe or send a please subscribe to 845-216-9330. Again, it's 845-216-9330. I wish you a good Shabbos and a good Kabbalah Torah. You should have a beautiful, beautiful Yom Tif. Thank you for joining.